The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. The word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. We are here to study in the word of God in the life of David, life of David. And this, as far as I can tell, this will probably be our final session in the life of David. Uh, And then we'll move on from there. And as I mentioned, my plan, and I do have a kind of an update. My plan is that we're going to look at two different studies in the interim before we begin our next series. One of those studies is going to be on eschatology. We're going to talk about what is to come in the end times. Uh, What is the next thing that's going to happen? What comes after that? What comes after that? Where we are looking uh, in terms of the new heavens and the new earth and all those sorts of things. So we'll spend some time on that. And also a request was made, and I think it's probably a good one, uh, good, good one to spend some time on. And that is, what does it really mean for us as believers to walk by means of the spirit? What is that all about? How do we do that? Uh, How do we how do we function in that way? Because we know that's what God would have us to do. And so we're going to continue on uh, after our eschatology study and take a look at that. Lewis Berry Chafer wrote a whole book about it. It's called He That Is Spiritual. It's a whole big book, uh, but we're not going to go through it in the detail that he did, but we're going to talk about what it means to walk in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord and walk by means of the Spirit. After that, uh, I'm starting to settle in now, believe it or not. I think we're going to go passage by passage through... First and second Timothy. At one point I was thinking of first and second Thessalonians, but as I've looked at it some more, I think we're going to go passage by passage through first and second Timothy. There is so much in there that will be really beneficial for all of us. And I'm not 100 percent decided on that, but that's where I'm kind of sitting at the moment is first and second Timothy. Well, before we get to our life of David study, and we are going to do a quick review of what we covered in this uh, material last week <clears throat> before we move on and do that let's take a moment for silent prayer we need to make sure our heart is prepared for the study of the word of god shall we pray Most gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather here today. We pray that you would bless our time and enable us to set aside distractions, focus our thoughts on what it is you're trying to teach us today, that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray all of these things in his most precious and beautiful name. Amen. Well, by the way, the notes, it's the same notes we had last week, because we're going to go back over material from that. We're looking at the dedication of the temple. We covered this material from 1 Kings chapter 8. First thing we see is we have Solomon who brings in the Ark of the Covenant into the temple. And everybody was gathered together for what is known as the Feast of Booths. Now, I have a little bit of information about that, by the way. The Feast of Booths. Um, We had a little bit of a discussion about that last week and so i looked into it a little bit more just to give more information and so the feast of booths is known as the feast of booths the feast of tabernacles and the feast of the ingathering so what we talked about all of it is true ed brought up the idea that it it has to do with 
remembering the wanderings of the Jewish people. And so what happens in the Feast of Booths, regardless, remember, this is one of the three times a year when the, when the men would all come into together to do the feast in Jerusalem and or wherever the tabernacle was, actually, but at, in Jerusalem at, the, at this time. So they would come in regardless of where they lived. And during the seven days of the Feast of Booths, they would all live in tents. Everybody would live for that week in tents. They would stay in tents at that time. And it was a reminder of what, how they had to live during the wanderings. However, that feast was typically held, uh, well, it had a specified time as when, to when it was held. And what it was was the time of year right after they would have gathered the harvest. And so not only was it a reminder of, and that's kind of what we were talking about last week, not only was it a reminder of their wanderings, it was a celebration of God's provision for them. Because if you think about it, they had just gathered the harvest. And so they were celebrating the fact that God had provided once again a harvest for Israel, right? So it was a celebration of that as well. So the Feast of Booths was an annual gathering, and it was typically seven days, seven days. So the elders and the heads of the tribes and families got special invitations. But everybody, and I say all the men of Israel were assembled in Jerusalem for the feast anyway. But there was a special invitation given to the heads of the tribes and the families and the elders of Israel. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was in the tabernacle, which was in Mount Zion, on Mount Zion in southeast Jerusalem. And that's why I was pointing out they built the temple uh, in Jerusalem, but the tabernacle was in southeast Jerusalem, in what is known as the city of David. Uh, that portion of Jerusalem was referred to as the city of David. So they were bringing the ark from there to the, to the temple. So the priests took up the Ark of the Covenant, and they also brought the tabernacle and its holy utensils. So the tabernacle itself was brought. So they brought the whole thing. And like I said last week, I believe they probably stored it in those side rooms of the temple. They brought the tabernacle itself and stored it there. And we talked also about how eventually the material that the tabernacle was made out of probably deteriorated at some point. But they probably were storing it. And, and then the utensils were brought also. And remember, the furnishings would have had to have been put somewhere too because they made all new furnishing, furnishings for the temple. That's one of the things that we were looking at is how they had made new furnishings for the temple. So the furnishings that had been in the tabernacle had to be stored as well. But these things would have been considered holy. So they wouldn't have just brought them over and then just, you know, chunked them out on the ground somewhere. They would have stored them in a way in accordance with its. Uh, and this is what I that's the note. Yeah, the tabernacle and its furnishings may have been stored in the side rooms of the temple. That's the note there. The people responded to the bringing of the Ark of the Covenant by worshiping the Lord and sacri sacrificing innumerable animals uh, they were praising God. They were, they were offering up these sacrifices. They were thanksgiving offerings and all sorts of things in the process. But they were joyful about the ark being brought to the temple. Uh, the ark was placed in the Holy of Holies under the wings of the two cherubim. And then the poles that used, were used to carry the ark were so long they could actually be seen from the holy place, which is the room outside of the Holy of Holies. They, they were long enough where they could actually be seen from the, the nave or the holy place. And this is all material we looked at last time. Moses' two tablets of stone were all that was inside the Ark of the Covenant. 
As I pointed out, the pot of manna and Aaron's rod that budded were not in the Ark of the Covenant. We had a question about Aaron's rod that budded. So we'll take a look at that too. And in order to look at that, what we're going to do is we're going to go back to Numbers chapter 17. And actually the context here, let me back up just a little bit. The context here is uh, some murmurings. The people of Israel were murmuring and grumbling. And and this is significant because they hardly ever did that. Yeah, I'm glad you picked up on that. So, but this was just one of those cases, right, where they were murmuring and grumbling. And in fact, in this particular case, it brought about a plague. I'm not going to read through that whole thing, but it brought about a plague. And Moses and Aaron had to intercede. But even by the time they did that, uh, over 14,000 had died by the plague. So there was a, there was there were some murmurings going on. And what it was had to do with was, why, you know, why are you guys in charge? Why are, you know, you, Moses, you and Aaron, why are you guys in charge? All right, and then we get to chapter 17 of Numbers. And then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and get from them a rod for each father's household, 12 rods from all their leaders according to their father's households. You shall write each name on his rod. Remember what the father's households, who would that be? That would be the tribes, right? That would be the 12 tribes. And write Aaron's name on the rod of Levi. For there's one rod for the head of each of their father's households. He shall then deposit them in the tent of meeting. That's the tabernacle in front of the testimony where I meet with you. It will come about that the rod of the man whom I choose will sprout. Thus, I will lessen from upon myself the grumblings of the sons of Israel who are grumbling against you. Moses, therefore, spoke to the sons of Israel and all their leaders gave him a rod apiece. For the leader, for each leader, according to their father's households, 12 rods with the rod of Aaron among their rods. So Moses deposited the rods before the Lord in the tent of the testimony. Now, on the next day, Moses went into the tent of the testimony and behold, the rod of Aaron for the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds and produced blossoms and it bore ripe almonds. Moses then brought out all the rods from the presence of the Lord to all the sons of Israel, and they looked, and each man took his rod. But the Lord said to Moses, put the rod of Aaron before, put back, excuse me, the rod of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign against the rebels that you may be, that you may put an end to their grumblings against me so that they will not die. Uh, Thus Moses did just as the Lord had commanded him, so he did. Now it doesn't specifically say at this point that he put it in the Ark of the Covenant, but nonetheless, this is the idea that it was put back, right? It was put back and it was kept as a sign. Remember, we talked about it last week, that it was a miraculous thing that took place and it showed that the Lord had chosen Moses and Aaron to be the ones to lead. And so all the grumblings that were going on uh, were, out of, were out of place, right? That stuff was out of place. So that was a little bit more information. I think, Lindy, you had asked about Aaron's rod that budded And so that was what that was about. Again, it was a miraculous thing where the Lord showed his will to the people of Israel. Uh, So we don't know that these two items, the pot of manna or Aaron's rod that budded, we don't know if they were placed there sometime after this or if they'd been removed by one of Israel's enemies. If, in fact, the Aaron's rod that budded had been put in the Ark of the Covenant, if that's where they were storing it uh, at the time, then maybe the Philistines or someone else who had uh, tormented Israel and even taken the ark at one point. Maybe they had taken it out of there. We don't know. But the reality of it is it's specifically mentioned in this passage that the only two things in the 
ark were the two tablets of stone. When the priests exited the holy place after placing the ark in the holy of holies, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Uh, This cloud is often referred to as the Shekinah glory. Shekinah means he caused to dwell. In other words, he came to dwell. Uh, He caused himself to dwell in there. Uh, The Shekinah glory filled the tabernacle in a similar way. And we looked at that in Exodus chapter 40. Now remember, you won't find the word Shekinah in the Bible. It's not there. It's a term that was coined by the rabbis to speak of this glory of the Lord being present. And it's because of what it means he caused to dwell. So the Shekinah glory, but that's the term we often use, is the Shekinah glory to talk about the glory of the Lord filling up the tabernacle or the temple. All right, this is new material. This is what, uh, where I stopped and gave you a teaser last time. Solomon highlighted this remarkable occasion by addressing the people. 1 Kings 8, uh, 12 through 21. He begins by addressing the Lord in verses 12 and 13. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in the thick cloud. I have surely built you a lofty house, a place for your dwelling forever. And when he does that, he's actually speaking to the Lord because he turns in verse 14. He then turned to face the assembly of people who were standing reverently before him. Verse 14, then the king faced about. About face, right? The king faced about. And blessed all the assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel was standing. And again, they were all standing there before him as this this dedication was taking place. Solomon explained how building the temple had been the result of the Lord fulfilling his promise to his father David. Verses 15 through 21. He said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who spoke with his mouth to my father David. And has fulfilled it with his hand, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel from Egypt, I did not choose a city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, Because it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house. But your son, who will be born to you, he will build the house for my name. Now, the Lord has fulfilled his word which he spoke. For I have risen in place of my father David and sit on the throne of Israel, as the Lord promised, and have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. There I have set a place for the ark, in which is the covenant of the Lord, excuse me, which he made with our fathers when he brought them from the land of Egypt. So there's, uh, there's him talking about this is a fulfillment of the promise made to David. So then Solomon offers up an amazing prayer of dedication for the temple. He begins by kneeling on his knees with his hands spread out toward heaven. Now we have to uh, put a couple of verses together to see that. In verse 22... It says, Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. If we skip down to verse 54, it says, When Solomon had finished praying this entire prayer and supplication to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread toward heaven. So verse 22 doesn't say it. 
But in verse 54, we see that he was actually kneeling down uh, and praying this prayer. This was actually done on a special bronze platform built for this dedication service. We do not have that in our first Kings passage, but in second Chronicles, sorry about that. In second Chronicles, it's not cooperating. Stop it. There we go. Second Chronicles chapter six, verse 13. Now Solomon had made a bronze platform, five cubits long, five cubits wide and three cubits high. And had set it in the midst of the court, and he stood on it, knelt on his knees in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and spread out his hands toward heaven. So in Second Chronicles, it's recorded that there was a special platform that had been made for him to be able to speak on. Again, why is, why is it important to make a note of that? Well, it shows the reverence that Solomon has for this whole thing. I mean, he feels incredibly privileged to be building this temple in the first place that it was his to do to fulfill the promise made to his father david he feels incredibly blessed to be able to be there and offering up this dedication of the temple itself and so he takes it very seriously and has a special platform made that he can then be on in order to do this and again it was all part of how he had reverence for what this was all about He began his prayer by praising God for his uniqueness and faithfulness in verses 23 and 24. He said, O Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing loving kindness to your servants who walk before you with all their heart, who have kept with your servant, my father David, that which you have promised him. Indeed, You have spoken with your mouth and have fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. So the uniqueness of God, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath. But then it talks about his faithfulness, keeping covenant, showing loving kindness to your servants. Uh, And then it goes on to talk about his promise, which he has fulfilled. So that's God's faithfulness. He continues his prayer by petitioning God, making eight requests We're going to see that here in these following verses, starting in verse 25. He asked God to be with him as he was with David and to hear his prayer. Verses 25 through 29. He says, Now, therefore, O Lord, the God of Israel, keep with your servant David, my father, that which you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit on the throne of Israel. If only your sons take heed to their way, to walk before me as you have walked. Now, therefore, O God of Israel, let your word, I pray, be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant, my father David. But will God indeed dwell on earth, on the earth, I should say? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. Yet, Have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his supplication, O Lord, my God, and to listen to the cry and to the prayer which your servant prays before you today, that your eyes may be open toward this house night and day toward the place of which you have said, my name shall be there to listen to the prayer which your servant shall pray toward this place. So he's asking not only, by the way, uh, for this prayer, but any subsequent prayers as well. Hear my prayer. Hear my prayer. That's what he's saying. You know, and he says, look, heaven 
can't contain you, much less this building I've built. Nonetheless, and he goes on in verse 28, and what he's really indicating is, you know, this in verses 28 and 29, that this, this is a special place. This has been built, uh, you know, for the Lord, and it's a place where his name shall be, right? And so even though this house can certainly not contain the Lord, and remember, it's been filled with the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah glory, and he's saying, look, this house cannot contain you. This house cannot contain Almighty God. But nonetheless, this is a special place that's been built for your name. And so as we, as we turn our eyes toward this place, hear our prayers. First he starts with his own prayer. Hear my prayer that I offer up to you. He asks for God to hear the prayers of the people. Forgive them of their sins and judge between them righteously. That's in the next three verses. And, when, and I want you to look at, the, look at these prayers. Look at this prayer he's offering up. And you can tell his heart attitude at this time. I mean, what is he praying for? Is he praying for riches? Is he praying for... No, he's, he's asking for God to be glorified. He's asking for his prayer to be heard because he wants God to uh, not only hear the prayers but answer the prayers and that he would be glorified through all of that. Verse 30, listen to the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Here in heaven, your dwelling place, hear and forgive. Now see, again, he's pointing out we're praying toward this place because this place is a place that's dedicated to you. This place is, is something where your name is and you've associated yourself with it and we've seen the Shekinah glory as well. But then he says, and here in heaven, because he recognizes God is not physically located in that building, but they're praying toward it because this building has his name. He says, here in, your, in heaven, your dwelling place, hear and forgive. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath, and he comes and takes an oath before your altar in this house, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the wicked by bringing his way on his own head and justifying the righteous by giving, to, giving him according to his righteousness. In other words, judge fairly. Judge fairly between the peoples of Israel, these people that are your people. So he wants forgiveness. He wants them, God to hear the prayers, forgiving, forgiving them of their sins and judging between them righteously he asked god to forgive the sins of the people that lead to military defeat this is an interesting prayer i think because uh, it it's certainly something that ends up coming to pass uh in verses 33 and 34 he says when your people israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you if they turn to you again and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this house then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave to their fathers. Now, is that, is that not prophetic? Uh, I mean, think about it. I mean, there's, there's, they have not been sent out of the land. They're actually settling into the land right now. And they're building a temple for God and they're settling into the land right now for the first time. And yet Solomon is looking forward to the failures of Israel and the idea that they would be actually kicked out of their own land, which we know does come to pass, come to pass, excuse me, later on. Not, not all that much later, but later on. The fourth thing, he asked God to forgive the sins of the people that lead to drought, famine, pestilence, blight, mildew, and other such calamities. Verse 35, when the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, and they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin 
when you afflict them. Then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants and of your people Israel. Indeed, teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land, which you have given your people for an inheritance. If there's famine in the land, if there's pestilence, if there's blight or mildew, locusts or grasshopper, if their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer or supplication is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and spreading his hands toward this house, then here in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each according to all his ways whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land which you have given to our fathers. So he's saying, and by the way, and he covers everything. He mentions a number of things, but then he says, and whatever, whatever might come, right? Whatever may come to us, because he understands that the people of Israel, as they turn their eyes away from God, that the people of Israel will suffer consequences, that Israel itself will suffer consequences as a result of that. Now, we live in a different time and we don't have the same kind of promises today as the people of Israel did for their land and such. Uh, But nonetheless, do we not see consequences in our own land as a result of the apostasy of the land? We were talking about it in the prayer meeting. We kept talking about different things that we were lifting up. And every time we would talk about it, we'd come back to the fact that it was all related to the spiritual health of our nation that we see apostasy in the land and all of that brings about these things that we have happening in our country uh, because of the spiritual apostasy. And we were talking about, you know, what percentage of the population of the United States of America are actually Christians. I don't think it's that many. I think it's actually a smaller number than most people think. And then if you take that number, how uh, how how many are Christians who are actually walking the walk? I mean, how many of the Christians that you have in the land are actually walking the walk? I think it's very small. It's a very small percentage. And that's really where the root of a lot of our problems are. And what Solomon is acknowledging here is that that same thing is going to be an issue for Israel. That as they fall away from the faith, that God's going to bring things upon them and, uh, and that, that it's going to take the repentance of the people. And I think it's neat that in this section, if you notice, he talked about... You know, God's the only one who can look upon people's hearts. Now, God had given Solomon incredible wisdom, incredible wisdom to be able to rule over the people of Israel and to be able to make, you know, decisions, judgments. But Solomon is acknowledging at this point that only God can look upon the hearts of the people. So whether they're truly repentant or not, only God's going to know the answer to that. Fifth thing, he asked God to hear and answer the prayers of God-fearing foreigners. I think this is pretty interesting as well. He says, also, back up, also concerning the foreigner who is not of your people Israel, when he comes from a far country for your name's sake. See, there's what you have. This is somebody who's coming from a foreign country for the Lord's sake. For his name's sake. And then parentheses. For they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. Close parentheses. When he comes and prays toward this house. Hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you. 
in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name to fear you as do your people Israel and that they may know that this house which I have built is called by your name. Now, is this this is the proper hard attitude towards the non-Israelites, the Gentiles. And he's talking about those that come and seek the Lord. And this is an attitude expressed in this that we see change over time. Because by the time you get to the time of Christ, uh, the, the word Gentiles had become associated with unbelievers, right? That if you called somebody a Gentile, it was basically calling them an unbeliever. And uh, the idea of, a, of a, a Gentile, I'm talking about before, you know, the advent of the church and the things that changed there. But the, the Jewish people looked at it as somebody who was a Gentile as basically a, a dog, a pig, a, you know, they were, they were trash. And, uh, and Solomon here is praying for the Gentiles, praying for the God-fearing Gentiles who are going to come seeking the Lord's name, that God will hear them in heaven and that he will be glorified by them coming, actually, by their coming. He asked God to grant Israel victory in battle when they are seeking him. I think that's interesting, too, because he specifically talks about when their hearts are in the right place. He says, when your people go out to battle against their enemy, this is verse 44 here, 44 and 45. When your people go out to battle against their enemy, by whatever way you shall send them, and they pray to the Lord toward the city which you have chosen and the house which I have built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. And that language of maintaining their cause that is be with them in battle. That's what it's talking about, be with them in battle. He's asking for, for God to give them victory in battle. As, but notice the hard attitude he's talking about, right? That they're praying about this. You know, they're not just going out in the battle and saying, you know, we've got a mighty army. We're going to win for sure. Uh, boy, would that be awesome if we could see some more of that. If you, go back, if you go back to World War II, during World War II, there was much being spoken about in terms of prayer. And the, the need for prayer and the importance of prayer with regard to our soldiers being in battle. And today, that's not brought up so much, right? It's not nearly brought up so much. Everybody talks about what an amazing military we have, and we do. Uh, but remember what happened to Israel every time they relied upon their own might. They lost. <laughs> yeah, they would have defeat. And so uh, Solomon's prayer here is that when they turn their hearts toward him and pray... That God will maintain their cause. Seventh, he prophetically, again, prophetically asked God to restore the people of Israel from captivity if they repent of their iniquity and wickedness, verses 46 through 51. We already had that prophetic tone earlier in this prayer. Uh, Verse 46, when they sin against you, and this is an important little parenthesis here, there is no man who does not sin, right? We know there was one, right? There was one. Uh, that was Christ himself. When they sin against you, for there's no man who does not sin, and you are angry with them and deliver them to an enemy so that they take them away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near, if they take thought in the land where they have been taken captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land of those who have taken them captive, saying, we have sinned and have committed iniquity, we have acted wickedly, If they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who have taken them captive and pray to you toward their land, which you have given to their fathers, 
the city which you have chosen and the house which I have built for your name, then hear their prayer and their supplication in heaven, your dwelling place, and maintain their cause. Again, that same language. And forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions which they have transgressed against you, and make them objects of compassion before those who have taken them captive, that they may have compassion on them. And then parentheses, for they are your people and your inheritance, which you have brought forth from Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace. All right, so he's, he's saying, look, when the people are taken captive and they repent of what they've done, then bring them out of there and give, give their captors mercy and bring them out of captivity. I mean, interestingly, I think in some ways this prayer was probably ringing in the hearts of the, of the Israelites when they were taken into captivity in Babylon and the temple was destroyed. Because what did he say when they pray toward this land, when they pray toward your city, when they pray toward this place, which I have built. And so for the people of Israel, when the, when the temple was destroyed, when, when basically uh, Nebuchadnezzar had the, and his, his, his military men, when they destroyed the temple and raided it and everything else that they did, that had to be you know, really discouraging for the people of Israel and uh, the thing about it is, what's, what's critical, when a Jew would pray to God and repent of, of the sins and uh, acknowledge to God the, the sins that they had committed, the transgressions and wickedness which they had been part of, did they need to pray toward the temple or just pray? They just needed to pray, right? The, this is a dedication of the temple, and that's why Solomon's praying the way he was praying. But still, if you think about it, this was a pretty special prayer that he's praying here. Something that the Jewish people would treasure. And when the temple was destroyed, that had to be disheartening. Because they still sort of thought of that as being able to pray towards the temple. And then as the temple's destroyed, they, they see that as being destroyed as well. Um, he then summarized by asking God to hear all the supplications of his people in the final couple of verses of this prayer. He says uh, that your eyes may be open to the supplication of your servant and to the supplication of your people Israel to listen to them whenever they call to you. For you have separated them from all the peoples of the earth as your inheritance, as you spoke through Moses, your servant, when you brought our fathers forth from Egypt, O Lord God. So this is the end of the prayer. And so he's prayed this amazing prayer. And he's asked for eight specific things. One second. He's asked for eight specific things in this and in any of that was is any of that in any of that was their selfishness the closest thing you can get to that was Solomon asking for God to hear his own prayers but was that really selfish i would argue no there's nothing selfish in this entire prayer he's praying for the people of israel he's praying for them to repent when they fall into sin he's praying for forgiveness he's praying for God to judge them fairly everything about this is an incredible prayer yes paul Yes, I believe this I believe this whole section does correlate absolutely this last part where he talks about 
being taken captive. In Second Chronicles 7.14, it says, uh, My people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Now, this was specifically given to Israel. No question. This was specifically given to Israel. Is there application today? I do believe so. I believe that if our land truly saw a revival, if we had not only the not only unbelievers coming to faith in Jesus Christ, but also believers turning from their ways and following after the things of God, I think you would see an amazing transformation of this land, a true healing of the land. Yes. Yes, and that's right. So I think so, I think Solomon's I think Solomon's prayer that we were just looking at is primarily targeting the believers in Israel because you do is what you talked about that repentance, that humility, all of that. Um and I think this language here in 2nd Chronicles is similar that and and again it goes back if you think about it in the times of Israel, I mean there I wouldn't the scriptures don't disagree with that because if you think about it in the times of Israel, it's all about there's a remnant of believers within the land. But remember, Israel, important to remember, Israel called out from among, from among the peoples of the earth. And Israel is made up of believers and unbelievers because Israel is the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the 12 tribes. And you don't have to be a believer to be part of that. So Israel is believers and unbelievers. But I believe that Solomon's prayer and this verse here are addressed to the believers within Israel. And see, the difference for us today is that the church is made up of a body of believers. Everybody in the church is a believer. It was not true in Israel, but I agree with you. I think that the believers were being addressed because that's where the repentance, the humility, the confession of sin for forgiveness and all of that is going to come from is from the believers within Israel. Absolutely. And did you have something, Deb? Okay. All right. So now there's a benediction. Solomon pronounced a benediction upon the people in the next verses. He arose from kneeling to pray, and he blessed the assembly of the people. In verses uh, 50, uh, just zoom down there, verses 54 and 55. When Solomon had finished praying this entire prayer and supplication to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord, from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread towards heaven, and he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice, saying, right? So he's pronouncing a blessing upon them. First off, he thanked God for giving Israel rest. He says in verse 56, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he promised through Moses his servant. So he's saying, God, thank you for giving us rest. And see, that's part of the whole thing as I went back to with the building of the temple itself, when everything was in turmoil, when they were under attack from all sides and things were going on. That's why the tabernacle was so important. They could pick up and move wherever they needed to go. If there was something going on in the land that they could, they could pick up and they would go to where it was a safe place to be. Now God had given the people of Israel rest after David had died he gives the people of Israel rest because remember a lot of the unrest that Israel faced was a consequence of David and his own sins because God said that his 
not only was the land itself, but his own house would be in turmoil for the rest of his life. And sure enough, we saw that, didn't we? The land itself and uh, his own household was in turmoil. Well, now we have rest. And so he's thanking God for giving his people rest. He asked God to work in the hearts of the people of Israel to cause them to walk in his ways and glorify him. Verses 57 through 61 it says, may the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to himself. Do you pray that prayer? We should. Now, he's, he's blessing the people right now. This is not a form of a prayer, but do we pray that? Do we ask God to incline our hearts to him? If we don't, we should. We should be asking him to incline our hearts to him. May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers, and may he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to himself, to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his ordinances. Again, that's three aspects of the law, which he commanded our fathers. And may these words of mine, with which I have made supplication before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no one else. Let your heart, therefore, be wholly devoted to the Lord our God to walk in his statutes and to keep his commandments as at this day. Let your heart, and you notice that it starts with the heart, right? You, a lot of times all people are thinking about, all they're focused on is externals. It starts with the heart. Let your heart, therefore, be wholly devoted to the Lord. Solomon then offered sacrifices for the dedication of the temple, <clears throat> verses 62 through 64. Uh, the people of Israel joined him in offering up these sacrifices, Now, the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifice before the Lord. Solomon offered for the, uh, for the sacrifice of peace offerings, which he offered to the Lord, 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the sons of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. On the same day, the king consecrated the middle of the court that was before the house of the Lord, because there he offered the burnt offering and the grain offering and the fat of the peace offerings, for the bronze altar that was before the Lord was too small to hold the burnt offering and the grain offering and the fat of the peace offerings. I, uh, yeah, 22,100, yeah. Uh, a staggering number of peace offerings were made in the dedication. Solomon then consecrated, as I said, the courtyard in front of the temple as well. I, I think about this and, you know, there's a significance to that in terms of the event itself. And the number of animals that were sacrificed in the dedication of the temple. But I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a fingernail getting dirty kind of guy. And I look at this whole thing and I think, what must the logistics have been like? Think about that for a second. What kind of logistical organization did it take to have that many animals and to do all of that and to clean all that up and everything else that went with it? That had to be, I mean, you talk about an organization and uh, a, a really, and I, my, 
It does not say it in the text. But my view of that whole thing is it was a completely orderly, completely God-honoring process by which all of that took place. And, uh, and that takes something. That was, not, that was non-trivial. That's my point. Not only was it a large number of animals, a lot was involved in bringing that about. Yeah, well, they couldn't have eaten all of it, but there would have been some of it that would have been dedicated and it would have been eaten by the priests, for example, and that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Oh, yeah, they had them organized by tribes. Absolutely. I agree. They would have had them organized by tribes. But still, think about that. Think about what it would have taken to have had that come about and have it work in such a way that it would have been, you know, not just absolute chaos. I mean, it would have had to have taken some real work. Uh, to get that together once the dedication was complete solomon joined with all israel in celebrating the feast of booths now that see the dedication is over they're celebrating the feast of booths that's in uh, 65 and 66 if i can find my mouse there it is Uh, so solomon observed the feast at that time and all israel with him a great assembly from the entrance of hamath to the brook of egypt before the lord our god for seven days and seven more days remember i told you normally it's just seven days But this was a special occasion, seven days and seven more days, even 14 days. Now, on the eighth day, it's on the eighth day of that second week. On the eighth day, he sent the people away and they blessed the king. Then they went to their tents, joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord had shown to David, his servant, and to Israel, his people. So even though this says the eighth day, it's talking about the eighth day of that second seven days. So after the 14 days was complete. Now, in the language of this, I want you to notice there were people from all over, all over the place were there. Uh, that's why it mentions this, a great assembly from the entrance of Amath to the brook of Egypt. It's just talking about that they were basically from all over the place. They'd come to celebrate the Feast of Booths and to be there for uh, the dedication of the temple. As I mentioned, the feast was normally seven days, but was extended. And on the 15th day of the feast, Solomon sent the people home joyful and thankful. So there it is. There it is. The end of the celebration. Because remember, this was all being done during the, the Feast of Booths anyway. So this was the end of the celebration, the end of the Feast of Booths. At this point, the temple's been dedicated. And now Israel, from this, from this point forward, now Israel no longer will go to a tabernacle somewhere. They're coming to the temple. This was their place that they would gather together for worship was the temple that had been built in Jerusalem. So this is a big day. This is a big thing. It represents, again, the idea of the stationary temple that's in one place. It represents the idea that the people of Israel were finally able to settle in uh, into the land. Now, they never occupied all that they were supposed to. Keep that in mind. They've never, Israel has, to this day, has never occupied all the land that was promised to them. They will one day occupy all of it, and it will come about when Jesus Christ himself brings it about. When he returns at the second advent, he will make it happen. Yes. You know, I'll have to look at that. When did the ark get lost? I want to I want to say it was at the time of the captivity when Babylon took uh, Judah captive. But I'm not 100 percent sure. I will try to find out the answer for you on that. Uh, it was there in the in the temple, and then when when ba- when Babylonians sacked the temple, you know, at that point, uh, did they take the ark, and, and that's where 
Um, of course, it, God didn't lose it. He knows where the ark is. But, <laughs> but as far as the, as far as the the taking away of it, I'll, I'll I'll look that up for you. I don't know the answer. I think that's probably when it was was in the was when the Babylonians sacked the temple. Because I don't know that the ark I don't know that the ark was back in the temple. Was the ark back in the temple during the time of uh, Herod's temple? Was it back in the temple at that time? I'm not sure either. I'll have to look that up. I'll have to look that up. Yeah. Yeah, the Philistines took it. Well, but yeah, but we already we already looked at that, right? That actually happened before this that the Philistines took the ark and 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 bad stuff happened to them, right? Bad bad stuff happened to them. And finally they said, "You know what? Let's get rid of this thing cuz we don't want it around." Uh, so anyway, uh, but yeah, I'll find out, I'll, I'll find out and get you an answer on that. That's a good question. When did, when did it actually get lost? Um, I want to look at our scripture of the week, but I want to tell you, I want to tell you guys all a quick story. So I was out of town this last week and I was, I was up in uh, North Dakota and I was listening to the radio and a story was told. I just thought this was amazing. And so I wanted you to hear it. A story was told about this journeyman uh, golfer who had actually come in. I think he finished in the top ten in this one tournament. And they had him on a show, and they were interviewing him. And he got to tell some stories about some things that had happened in his life. And and I'm not going to go into all the detail that he did. I mean, to listen to him tell the story was amazing. But uh, basically at one point... Um, He's not, an, he's not old. He's a young man. You know, he's in his 30s. Um, and at one point he had a heart attack. And the EMS folks showed up and they did everything they could. They even had the paddles on there and were shocking him and the whole thing. And, uh, of course, he had to be told this part of the story because he was unconscious. But um, the, e, the EMT that was taking care of him pulled the paddles off. And basically decided he was going to do, if he had to, he was going to break his ribs to get his heart beating again. And he literally just started beating on his chest as hard as he could beat on his chest. And sure enough, his heart started beating again. And they found out what was wrong and they've done things and he's doing a whole lot better now as far as his heart goes. He survived that whole thing. But he was basically laying there, you know, having had a heart attack and his heart stopped beating. And, the, you know, this EMT beat on his chest and his heart comes back. Well, <clears throat> about... Two years later, I want to say, might have been less than that, but about two years later, uh, he has a little bit of land, and he and his wife were out working on the land, and he was under this piece of equipment, and the piece of equipment had hydraulic uh, action to it, and as they were sitting under there, all of a sudden, the hydraulics of this thing gave way, and and this piece of equipment fell on him and his wife, and they were pinned. They were trapped. And thankfully, he was able, there was, there was somebody, one of their kids, actually, one of their kids was nearby, and he yelled at the kid and told the kid to go get their neighbor and to have them call 911 and all that kind of stuff to get somebody out there. But while they were, while they're sitting there waiting under this piece of equipment, under the hydraulics of this piece of equipment, uh, under the, I should say, what the hydraulics had dropped on him, he watched his wife take her last breath. And they're sitting there, and he's just, he's just devastated. Anyway, again, the EM, EMTs show up. They, they show up to the site. They revive 
his wife, but you know, she's been, she hadn't breathed in some time and they have no idea what kind of damage has taken place, you know, that during the time when she wasn't breathing and all of that. And, you know, at first she didn't speak and she didn't even do much of anything. Even after she became conscious, she didn't speak and all these things. Anyway, fast forward the whole thing. She is 100% functional at this point. She has no, no lingering effects of having been squished underneath the hydraulics and not, you know, having taken her last breath at that point and all of that. And I listen to this whole story and I'm sitting there thinking, if you can't see the hand of God in that story of those two things, then you're not paying attention. I mean, clearly, and he, he didn't ever say anything about God and he didn't mention that, but he did use the language. Of course, other people do as well. He did say, we are incredibly blessed. And I just hope that somebody has been able to reach that man and his wife with a message of who God is, because there's no way that happens without God's hand being involved. I just thought it was such an incredible story. And this guy, he comes from a perspective now, you know, he thinks about a golf tournament. It's like, man, I'm just happy to be here, right? I was dead, you know, or effectively dead and was revived. My wife was uh, dead and revived. He says, you know, he's from a perspective. And really, that's the perspective all of us should have. Just being thankful for the fact that we're we're here today, you know. So I thought it was an amazing story, but I, I I just was sitting there thinking, man, God was involved in that whole thing, and I hope He knows that. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. God has something for him and his wife to do, right? God has something for them to do. So uh, that's amazing. All right, we're going to read this together. This is right before John three sixteen, John three fourteen and fifteen. Let's read it together. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. So, remember when Moses lifted up the serpent? All right, remember what that was all about? God had sent serpents upon the people of Israel, and the serpents were biting them, and they were dying. However... If Moses made a serpent, right, he made the serpent, and when he would raise up the serpent, they would look upon the serpent. If they would look, if, see, this is important. If the people of Israel would look upon the serpent, they would live. But if they didn't, they would die. So it's symbolic, right? It's, if this provision has been made, Moses has this serpent. If they look upon it, they live. If they don't, they die. So volition is involved. Right now, when that story was told in the Old Testament, there was nothing in that particular narrative talking about the serpents and the serpent that Moses would hold up. Right. As he lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, there was nothing that said, and oh, by the way, this is talking about the Messiah who is to come. Right. But now in the New Testament, when John gives us this, we now can realize, oh, you know what? That was prophetic. That was a type. It was a type of Christ. This serpent was lifted up. Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, interestingly, I did a little bit of research on this when I was looking at this passage. The Son of Man must be lifted up. Now, certainly... That language can be used to talk about him being lifted up on the cross. And that's how I immediately took it. 
But then I was reading some more, and there are some who say, well, actually, it might even be talking about lifted up into heaven, right? The ascension of Christ into heaven. And I think it's okay to say, you know what? It's probably both. It's probably a reference to him being lifted up on the cross and being lifted up before the, before the Father to his right hand. The Son of Man must be lifted up. But the point is, if they looked to the serpent, they would live. And now, if you look to the Son of Man, Christ himself, you will in him have eternal life. See, so the, the typology is there. The symbolism is there. The serpent was, Moses had the serpent and it was lifted up, but the people of Israel had to make the choice as to whether they were going to look upon it. And some did and some didn't, by the way. Some lived and some died. The same thing's true of the son of man. The provision has been made. God has given us the provision for salvation. All people have to do is look upon him. And that's in the language of believing, right? So that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Now, notice the language of this. It doesn't say so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And we, we get to that in the next verse. Verse 16. Verse 15 says, whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Again, the focus of our faith is on Christ but the focus of our blessings are in Christ. You see, the, everything that we have, all the blessings, the eternal life that we have, the new creation that we are, all the things that you can point to that we have as born-again believers, all of that is in Him. In Him, right? That's where it is. We have these things in Christ. We sit down. I did it before class. We sit down and pray to the Father. We have access to the throne in him. Everything you think of that you know that you have as a blessing and a privilege in this life is in him. It's in Christ, in the Son of Man. He's speaking, what's, what's interesting is he's speaking of himself in the third person, which he does. So as that, that serpent was lifted up, so he must be lifted up. And whoever looks upon him, right, Whoever believes will in him have eternal life. And that's the lead in. I want you to look. That is the lead in to for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. What I think is significant about that is Christ himself is bringing up. This is one of the reasons I wanted to highlight this. Christ himself is bringing up something from the Old Testament. He's talking about something new. Remember, in this passage, he's talking, he's, he's, I say he's talking about something new. He's talking about something important here in terms of being born again. This, remember, this is the whole passage with Nicodemus. And he's talking about that you have to be born again and all that that follows. And so he goes, by the way, right before this, right before this, if I back up, in verse 10, he says, are you the teacher of Israel who do not understand these things, <laughs> right, about being being born again. And he goes on from there. And then when he gets to verse 14, he says to Nicodemus something that Nicodemus would know well from the Old Testament. Look, look, this is the deal. Just as Moses lifted up that servant and the people of Israel, serpent, excuse me, and the people of Israel had to look upon the serpent, the son of man will be lifted up and the people need to look upon him as well. 
and in him have eternal life. And then he explains why the father sent him because God so loved the world in such a way he loved the world. He gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And the point I'm, point I'm trying to make is Christ himself, he does this all the time. He's preaching and he's telling these people these things and he brings in elements from the Old Testament because for them, for them, their scriptures were the Old Testament. And so they would have had knowledge of all of these things, but he's revealed something to us that's kind of neat. And that is that this lifting up of the serpent that was done by Moses in the wilderness was actually a type of Christ himself. And there's a few of those things in our Bible that when they happened, nobody had any idea that there was a typology there or that it was pointing towards the Christ. And yet when we get to the New Testament, we find out, you know what? That was pointing to him as well. And that's why that whole thing in, uh, in Luke where we have on the walk, right? Road to Emmaus. When he's on the walk... He, he takes the Old Testament and from the, and from the Old Testament, he talks about all these things that were actually talking about him. This is another example. That serpent that Moses was holding up was actually a reference to him. And that, I think that's incredible. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, John 1, 1, of course, is incredible. Um, and I, it's a reference to the pre-incarnate Christ for sure. In the beginning, and by the way, this is before the in the beginning of Genesis 1-1. <laughs> this, this is before that beginning. And because the Genesis 1-1 was, was in the beginning of the creation. This is the beginning. In the beginning, in eternity past was the Word. And, the, and I love that. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. Yeah. So he, right. Yeah, absolutely. He knows, he understands all of that. But he, uh, Jesus Christ himself, he knows all of these things. So the... The bottom line, though, is that this idea of tying it back into the Old Testament and it giving it even an even greater meaning with regard to what he's teaching here in this passage, that shows all of us the significance of the Old Testament verses that we study. As we look at these Old Testament passages, they're significant in terms of what we now know for, as we study things in the New Testament. And it's, it's, not, it's not appropriate, and some, unfortunately some churches do this, it's not appropriate to just discard the Old Testament uh, and maybe cherry pick a few verses out of it because the reality of it is the whole entire Old Testament is beneficial for us in our faith. It's foundational. It's what points to the coming of the Messiah and the Christ himself. So we should not ever throw those things aside. Jesus himself taught a Bible lesson right here to Nicodemus, who was a teacher for Israel. He taught him a Bible lesson uh, when he talked about Moses lifting up the serpent. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time we've had to study in the life of David, even extending on into the life of Solomon. We know uh, that in Solomon's life, he eventually uh, turns away and uh, is, is uh, well, he's susceptible to the, the times that he lived in and he succumbed to many of the temptations of the time and he ends up failing in so many ways and it, his failings end up leading to a divided kingdom uh, in Israel. Father, in our Life of David study, we've already seen 
the beginnings of that divided kingdom and some of the elements that we studied. But Solomon starts out so wonderfully, and we thank you for his, his blessing of the people of Israel, his prayer of dedication, just all the things that we've been learning about in the building of the temple and, and what led up to this, this chapter that we just studied. But, Father, we have learned so much from studying the life of David. We look forward to the things we're going to learn and the studies that follow. But we thank you for the, the record that we have in your word of David and his life and the life of Solomon as he began his, his reign in Israel. We thank you also for this reminder from the Gospel of John that there's so much we can learn from your word in the Old and the New Testament. We thank you for the way Jesus himself used the Old Testament scriptures to, to teach so many different things. And we, we thank you that he, he was a, a lesson and an example for us as to how we should approach your word, understanding that all of these things are a blessing for us, and all your word is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So thank you, Father, for preserving your word that we might grow through it. We thank you in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen. Kind of sad that it's over, but uh, 